All right. It has been a year. It has been some year. So praise God. I'm glad he's home. We're going to be in Psalm 73. And I have a clicker. This time. I will try not to let it go to my head. It's wonderful to see all your faces. Look at you. All socially distancing exactly how they should. Just in case somebody's tracking these things. You never know. I assume everything's being recorded and stored somewhere on a hard drive in some country. And I probably won't be wrong when it all turns out. But anyhow, not that I'm into conspiracy theories, but I have been noticing the earth looking a lot flatter than it used to. It may just be me. You know, it's hard to be a flat earther when you live in B.C., but when you move to the prairies, what evidence do you have a contrary to it? You know what I mean? As a joke. Don't get worried. All right, let's, we're going to read Psalm 73 together. And, um, <clears throat> and I've titled the message today, I, I Wish Life Were Different. Not necessarily because I feel like that right now, but all of us do. At some time, in some way, we have this strong frustration with the reality of life. We could really want things to be different. Has anybody felt like that in the last 12 months? Yeah, just two or three of us. You guys are so content and spiritually mature. I'm so impressed. That's why it's such a blessing to be here. No, I don't know if any of us have in life have had such a series of circumstances come our way out of our control that could make us feel very small, very stuck like a ping pong ball in the middle of the ocean during a tornado, blown around, out of control, frustrated, and just wishing things were different. And the psalmist in Psalm 73, his name's Asaph, he is so discontent with reality that he says, my foot almost slipped. Essentially, this is somebody working through having lost his faith for a while. And then by the mercies of God, having come back to the reality of faith in God. But this really is a, 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 a spiritual exploration of somebody kind of falling away from the faith because circumstances are so, or were for him for a while, so beyond his capacity to hold together faith and reality at the same time. And so I thought it would be good for us just to work through this and see what God does through a psalm. Um, I believe in the word of God. I believe it's 100% from the Lord through people. So it comes through their voices, but its ultimate origin is the Holy Spirit. And because of that, it's 100% trustworthy. And Psalms are always a bit weird because they sometimes have a lot more person in them than we're used to when we're reading the Bible. And so this is a fully human heart being led by the Holy Spirit to produce these words. So it's, But it's a journey. It feels very human. And many of us are going to be able to identify very profoundly or deeply with what this person was feeling like in his wrestle with frustration in circumstances while trying to believe that there is a God and he is in control and he is good and he's worth having our trust. Amen? So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to kind of tackle this section by section. 
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just come before you with all my neediness. Lord, fully convinced again from another week that I don't have any strength but what you provide or any wisdom except for what you give. Lord, thank you for James who tells us that if we lack wisdom, we can ask you and you will you'll provide generously without finding fault. And so, God, would you give us understanding and wisdom afresh today? God, I pray you would strengthen our hearts by truth. And yet, Lord, I know there's so much weariness of being people in a broken world, about being your image bearers in a sinful world, and being human beings in a COVID-crazy world. And so, Lord, would you encourage our hearts, strengthen us by grace. Lord, would you strengthen your church? Lord, even today, there's churches across the whole spectrum how to respond to these situations, Lord. There's a pastor in Alberta who's not coming out of prison for a while because he won't uh, not just let everybody who wants to come, come. And Lord, I'm sure there's churches who aren't going to open up at all for a while. And Lord, my prayer is that you would strengthen our faith, that you would take our offerings of self-sacrifice and make it count for the kingdom of God. And that you would multiply faith and believers in the world, Lord, as we seek to worship you and honor you. And Lord, would you let us find some extra grace to let ourselves be small in a world that only you control. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Asaph writes this. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And this is his kind of end of his faith journey, but starting off the story. He's come to a place where he can say out loud afresh, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And I want to say a couple things about this. Number one, just a good note that... When the psalmist is talking about Israel here, he's talking about true Israel. He's talking about people who have faith in the one true God, Yahweh, who we now know as the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we are children of this psalm as well. This psalm counts for us if we have faith in the, in the Lord, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So truly God is good to his people, to those who are pure in heart. And as you look at pure in heart here, that doesn't mean faultless. It means people who have had the blockages of unbelief worked on and passed through. Sorry, I'm stuck there. You know how it's been. The kidney stones of unbelief have been passed through their bodies so that there's less blockage. There's, There's less blockage to true faith in their life because they've walked through something hard with God. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying God is only good if you never have problems, if you never doubt, if you never struggle, if you never feel weak. He's saying God is good to everybody who goes through the fire with him, who goes through the pain with him and finds themselves purified through the refiner's fire, and finds themselves still in the presence of God through things that made them want to run, or through things that made them doubt. That's what he's talking about. You know it as you go through the psalm. He's not going to say to us, all this bad stuff happened, and I didn't feel it. That's not the story of Psalm 73. 2020, 2021 happened, and I never had a bad day. 
That's not the kind of pure of heart he's talking about. He's talking about people who went through the wood chipper, who went through the meat grinder. They started off their day a human. They ended up sausage. You know, that is the... But they, but they knew God through it and God rescued them from the worst parts of themselves through it. That's the pure of heart he's talking about here. And then he's going to tell us about his journey. And he says in verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Just a reminder, when you're reading Hebrew poetry, um, in English, our poetry tends to rhyme. You know what I mean? You always look for the rhyme at the end of line two. Roses are red, violets are blue. It was dry outside, so I wore a shoe. You know, you look for that rhyme, but if I said it was dry outside, so let's go get McDonald's, you'd say, that's not a poem. Because you're looking for that sound rhyme every time. Hebrew doesn't depend on sound rhymes. It depends on idea rhymes. And so you always hear them repeating the ideas, and they didn't care as much whether or not it said ooh, ooh, ooh at the end of every line. And so as we read this, you can just see here, my feet almost stumbled Thought rhymes with steps nearly slipped. And that's how the poetry works. Clear? It's actually genius because it means that you can translate Hebrew poetry into any language without needing it to rhyme. Because the ideas will translate. I don't know if they meant to do that, but God's really wise, and so I really just honor him in that. But that's how it works. But you can hear his heart. He, when he's talking about feet almost stumbling, he's not talking about that, those early days of March where it's warm outside, but everything's melted on the ground, and you're out there for your first walk of the year, and you're just like doing this all the time because it's icy. He's talking about the feet of his soul and the steps of his spirit. He's saying, I almost got taken out by this one, guys. That, that's what he's saying. Something happened, and I almost got taken out by it. I, I almost joined the ranks of the used-to-be's when it can't, comes to ticking your faith box on your census. The nuns. I almost became a nuns. And then he explains what was going on. That was the big problem. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so he identifies for himself my huge soul problem that almost led to me walking away from faith in God was envy. I saw other people living a life I wished I had. And I turned on God because of it. Envy is a crazy thing. It is perhaps one of the most, if not the most, destructive force in the world among men. Because all of us can look at somebody and imagine they have things that we wished we had and we need and we kind of deserve. Or imagine that the only reason they have that stuff is because they've done something wrong And God has let them get away with it. Envy. How do you wish your life were different? And you can't be content, and you can't be happy, and you can't be whole until you have it. And in the meantime, you've got to take care of yourself however you need to take care of yourself. Has anybody been there? 
You look out and you're just like, ah, I wish life were different. I wish I didn't get kidney stones. I wish I were stronger. I wish I were smarter. I wish I were a better leader. I wish I were more naturally happy. I wish I were taller. I wish I had more muscles. I wish I could just get, get some hair to fill in this spot on my chin. Which is even funny that you'd notice that, or I would. You know, we can laugh about it, but... But if we search our hearts, there are things we see missing in our character, our personality, our finances, our church, our family, our history, our story. Things that were missing that we wished we had something else or something that was there that we wished we didn't have to experience. And because of that, you're kind of angry at the world or angry at God or feel abandoned or feel rejected or feel like you can't be whole or feel like you can be happy. And the psalmist is just labeling it right off the bat. This is a form of envy. And it's a breaking of the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not envy your neighbor, his wife or his house or his ox or his donkey or his hair or his eyes or his money or his longevity or his parents or his kids or his whatevers. Because it'll kill you. Me. And truth be told, we live in a culture where envy is like our most basic way we look at life. Those guys get to do that stuff. Or they have that stuff. Does anybody have Texas envy right now? Mask freeness? And warm weather? Well, maybe not during the snowstorm, because they don't even own shovels there. That's so weird. They're like trying to clear the snow away with a broom. Poor Texas. See, we were getting spared from 100% Texas envy. Now we only have 95% Texas envy. But it's serious. The capacity to imagine your life being better than it is And being angry at God because you don't have the life you imagine. That's ultimately envy and it's so deadly. Sorry for the small size here. He's going to share how he was feeling about the arrogant. The prosperous wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They get to the front of the COVID lines. You ever notice that right when COVID was hitting the States, all the celebrities were like, I tested positive. I tested positive. And you're just like, how'd you even get tested? Therefore, pride is their necklace. And violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies because they think they can get away with just getting whatever they want without consequence. They scoff and they speak with malice, Twitter. Loftily they threaten oppression, Twitter again. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them 
and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. And you can see he's got a bit of a bitter take on the prosperous wicked, but this is how it looks to him. When he looks out over the world, he says the rich people get away with everything. They get everything and they get away with everything. And the more proud they are and the more rude things they do, the more people follow them and want to be like them and want to imitate them and follow them on YouTube and wear their clothes and their brands. The more drugs they, the more like illegal drugs that they sell in their music, the less they get arrested. And even if they do get arrested, the less they're likely to steal any jail time. Amen? Just as a moment of truth here, verse 10, therefore as people turn back to them and find no fault in them, people don't really know what that verse means. I think literally in the Hebrew it says they, they drink up a full cup or something like that. And they don't totally mean, know what it means, but as far as I understand it, that's that part where it's like, the more the rich prosper by doing evil, the more the people who are actually sinned against are impressed by them. Now that's a successful life. When you're so politically powerful that you can abuse women in the office and all your friends say, well, if only one more person came out, then we would try to get this person arrested. But it's only been three accusers. A fourth one would have sealed the deal. Or you watch a presidential inauguration and you know one of those former presidents has committed high crimes against people that would get you 10 to 20 years if you had done it. But there he is, sitting at the inauguration, getting praised by all the people around him. And you can look at that and you can be like, why wouldn't you want to be the prosperous wicked? They get away with everything. And it looks like God doesn't do anything about it. And it's envy. But when you're feeling like this, it feels like righteousness, right? It feels like you've, you've got them. You've spotted them. Hypocrisy. You've caught them out. It feels like the fiery vengeance of the Lord is in my, my spirit. Except I'm frustrated that God doesn't do anything. And there's this addictive nature that we have to catching out the evil in other people. And the psalmist says, it's, it's still, it's a trap. It's a form of envy. But here, he sees the prosperous wicked, and now his heart gets bitter. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. So these verses, 13 and 14, this is where his faith falters. He, said, he says, it is a waste of time to be a Christian. Anybody ever felt like that? It is a waste of energy and time to follow God. You get pain, you get suffering, you get rejected, you get poor, you get misunderstood, you get... And you get to feel guilty about not measuring up the whole time. Who wants to get baptized? Right? You get to fail God and be rejected by man, and it sucks. That's when he's looking at the prosperous wicked. This is his, his heart response, the envy. 
Oh, I just wish I could be evil and get away with it because it would be so much easier. And Christian, if you have never felt like this before, you probably will sometime before you die. And especially young people, I I would like to invite you to listen to me now. Sometime between now and 25, you will think that following God is the stupidest idea possible. Because all of the celebrities and all of your sports heroes and all of your friends are getting away with murder and having a great time doing it. And there's all these great options for how you can live your life without having to feel like a sinner and say no to your pleasures. You can be an atheist. You can be an agnostic. You can go into new age stuff where you get to do whatever you want and then come home and put on some patchouli and smoke a blunt and put on some relaxing music and feel spiritual. You can totally live a life without having to deal with evil or wickedness and just do what you want and have friends. And probably do better at at your business too. And so sometime you're going to feel like Asaph where it will feel like a waste of your life to keep following Jesus. And so God gave Asaph this terrible experience and then he rescued him from it and told him to write a psalm so that people like you and me who have days where you wake up or you go to bed saying it's a waste to follow God will be able to remember Psalm 73 and say, I am having an average normal experience of being a follower of God in this world where sometimes it looks like it's a waste and sometimes the worst people are treated like the best people and it seems so and just and so wrong and I just want to quit. And you know what? No matter how much I love you, I cannot rescue you from that experience coming. And your mom can't and your dad can't and your friends can't when that feeling comes. You need the Lord. And you need to hear what Asaph says next. He says, Verse 15, if I had said I would speak like this, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He says, I felt these feelings, but I didn't go on Facebook and start spouting because if I had gotten publicly bitter, it would have actually provoked unbelief in the next generation and wrecked their walks with God. So he saw himself going down a bad path and he said, I can't go there. But instead he tries to figure this out. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Friends, when we have these days where it seems like a waste, you need to run to God and fight with God and complain to God and wave your arms at God and weep before God and figure it out with before God, but you don't turn from him because then it's gonna it's never going to get better. But it's time to go to the sanctuary. And he had a sanctuary to go back then. We don't have a sanctuary. We call this a sanctuary, but um, in the New Testament, the temple of God is the people and the place of truth is God's word. So you don't actually have to fly to Israel in order to have this experience. But you need to go and talk to God about this. This is not a time to stuff. This is a time to, even if you need to, use some colorful language with God. But you have to figure this out with the Lord. 
because the stakes are too high for you and for everybody around you. And so this is what he discerns. And in a nutshell, he he just has to remind himself that there's always a time where it looks like people get away with stuff, but eventually they don't. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And so I don't know what he figured out about this, but I I sometimes wonder, and this is just wondering, but if he remembered his own family history of the people of Israel in Egypt and how for 400 years the Israelites were treated like human garbage and their prayers went unanswered and their slavery only got worse until that day when Moses came back from his exile And then within a short period of time, Egypt went from the world's greatest superpower to the world's biggest smoking crater. Because that was the time when God decided to act. And there's so many stories in the Bible where God does bring about justice. There is Sodom and Gomorrah and how they were so terrible to their visitors one day becoming a smoking ruin. The justice of God catches up with the world. It's just almost always way slower than what we would want. But in the meantime, it teaches us, while you have to wait, don't go onto their team so that you're in the blast radius when the fire starts to fall. But he looks at the Lord. He has to go to the Lord because just looking at people won't ever settle the problem. One of the craziest things about, if you're a student of history at all, which I try to be in an amateur way, for me it is so discouraging and mind-boggling how often the people who arise, who say, I'm going to rescue this country or this nation, always turn out to be way worse than the problem they were promising to solve for the people who were in pain. Put your trust in me, I'll rescue you. And then they turn out to be a Stalin. Put your trust in me, I'll rescue you. And then they turn out to be a Chairman Mao. Put your trust in me, I'll rescue you. And then they come turn out to be a Kim Jong-un or whatever. And there's so many people who say, put your trust in me, we will rescue you. And they end up being way worse than the original problem. And the heart issue is this, there's only one Savior. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't work by envy. And he doesn't work by bitterness. And he doesn't work by anger. And so when your leaders are trying to provoke bitterness and provoke anger and provoke strife in order to manipulate a people, you know it's not going to turn out to be God's will and it's not going to please him because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's the humility of man that welcomes the righteousness of God. And so he says this about himself. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. And for me, this is one of the verses that's been best for me. Because it's a great reminder. Hey, if I'm offended, if I'm angry, if I'm embittered, I'm much more like a pig than a man.
If I'm angry, if I'm embittered, if I'm frustrated, I'm much more like a rat than like an image bearer of God. Because once those feelings take hold of your heart and your head, what do you start operating on? Anger, lust, vengeance, jealousy. You've almost like given up control of yourself. And whoever comes along and just presses your button, triggered, you know, you're just waiting to, triggered. You're just waiting to get triggered. You're just waiting to get triggered again. Just go online to get face triggered. Am I right? And so this is what he learns about his own heart. He says, Asaph, never trust yourself when you're bitter. Never trust yourself when you've been triggered. Because if you do, you're going to act like an animal and not a worshiping image bearer of God. It's not even on the table anymore to do anything good. What do you do with a pig, Asaph? Well, you don't have a pig because you're a Jew, but what do you do with a bull? You put it in a pen. Why? Because you can't trust it. What do you do with your ox? You tie it up. Why? Because you can't trust it. It's just an animal. It might be nice one day, but it might gore you the next day. And this is us bitter. This is us angry at God. This is us angry at life. This is us angry at the world. We can't trust ourselves. Our instincts are dangerous. And so he goes to the best place possible here. He kind of almost just even just like, now that he's renewed his confidence in the justice of God. God, people don't actually get away with stuff. For a little bit they do, but ultimately, no. Now that he's given the world back to God by seeing God as the just judge and ruler of all creation, he now turns to the very best thing in life, which is a personal relationship with the God of the universe. And this is the only thing that makes life worth living. And this is the only thing that makes life worth enduring. And this is the only strength that makes life something you can get through. And this is the only thing that makes eternity worth something to be in. is God himself in his goodness. And that you can have him. And be had by him. That you can belong to him. And him belong to you. This is the very best thing. And the only sane way to live. And so he says this. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He was brutish. He was bitter. He was angry. And then he realized, even at his worst moment, God did not go anywhere. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. 
You can lose a friend. You can lose a dog. You can lose your your cat. Hooray. You can lose your money. You can lose your health. You can lose your freedoms. You can lose your country. You can lose your citizenship. You can lose your cable. You can lose your internet connection. You can lose your phone. You can lose your keys. You can lose your mind. You can't lose God. As you've given yourself to him and you have faith with him, he is continually with you. When you go to school, when you go to work, when you go to bed, when you close your eyes, this is the, the, one of the best parts about being a Christian is that you can be it all night long while you're asleep. Because God doesn't go anywhere, even when you are flatlined mentally. What a comfort. He's so faithful. You can't lose him. Even when the world goes crazy, Christian, God, God was not far away from you when you were far away from here. Next, he says, You're, you hold my right hand. I like to think about this. Did anybody go skating in the last couple of weeks? You know, we had like three days where it was cold enough to keep ice, but not cold enough that you died when you were trying to skate on the ice. You know, anybody go skating? And you go with a kid and they're just like all floppy-legged on there because if they're just getting started... What do they need? They, the whole time, they just need someone to hold their hand so that when they slip, they don't go down. So that when they do hit their behind, someone picks them up. And this is what he says about God. God, you are holding my right hand. I thought my feet had almost slipped. You never let go of my right hand. The only reason I came back to sanity is because you were there the whole time. You're so faithful. You've chosen me. You love me. You didn't let me go. You hold my right hand. And this is his confidence now for the rest of his life, Lord willing. God doesn't let go of us. This is kind of what makes being a Christian better than everything else. Everything else you have to perform. Even being an atheist, you have to perform your hatred of Christians. Everything else is about what you do. Knowing God is about how he doesn't let you go. Even though the rest of your life is learning how bad you are at holding on to God. Anybody? Anybody in the last year learn you're not that great at holding on to God all the time? You have ups and downs. You have lefts and rights. You have high points. You have low points. You have moments where you can't even believe you're saved. And God holds your right hand. And that's why you're here. It's the faithfulness of God. And you know what? It is the most sane, sanity-producing things in this crazy world that God doesn't let go, and he won't let go, and he holds your hand. And he's the faithful one, and he keeps this going. And it depends on the blood of his own son spilled, and not the blood moving even through my veins. And it depends on God's own plan to rescue sinners by grace on the cross, and not my plans to impress myself with my life or accomplish anything. It depends on God, and that's why we can be sane in an insane world. And then he begins to think, well, what about the future? Verse 24. Well, I know what the future is going to be. You're going to guide me with your counsel. All the wisdom I need for tomorrow, you'll give me tomorrow. And all the wisdom I need for next year, you'll give me next year. You're going to be there holding my hand. You're going to guide me. And then what happens when I die? 
Afterwards, you will receive me to glory. This is one of, you know, the Old Testament doesn't do a great job of talking about the afterlife, but this is one of the most clear descriptions of going to be with God in an amazing place in the Old Testament. He says, after you will receive me to glory. When you look at the world and it looks like a six-week-old hamburger patty, where's your confidence This isn't the end. Afterwards, God will receive me into glory. And the first five seconds of being in the presence of God after death are going to be better than everything you could have in this life. Have peace. Have soul rest. Have patience in an evil world. Don't lose hope when it hurts. He's going to take you home. This isn't our home. This isn't our home. This isn't it. This isn't as good as it gets. This isn't it. He's going to take us home. He's going to take us into glory. The first five seconds are better than everything you can get. It's going to be great. It's going to be better. And it's going to get better every single day without end. Don't lose heart. Don't leave him. Your hard days with the Lord aren't as good as it gets. He's going to take you home. And so he says, who have I in heaven but you? What God can be better than you? And there is nothing on the earth that I desire besides you. And then he talks about his new confidence in the Lord. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And amen. I said it before. I'll say it again. One of the things about being a Christian is learning. that All of our strengths is actually a gift from the Lord. We don't uphold ourselves. God does it. And he'll do it again tomorrow. So he wraps up by saying, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You'll put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So let's learn what Asaph learned. When you're going crazy because of the headlines, you may need to let yourself be content with knowing that God will get them. I I know we're nice Christians in the evangelical world and we, we tell ourselves that we don't want to be happy that anybody's going to hell. At the same time, rest assured no one will get away with anything. So don't lose God because you're angry with what it seems like people are getting away with. And I've heard this way. This sounds cruel. This sounds mean. I get it. But one person said one time, and his people had gone through a genocide recently. He said, The hope that there is no justice in this world from God can feel nice when you've never really gone through anything completely evil. But for those of us who've seen the worst that humanity can do, you cannot stay sane unless you know there's a hell. Because everybody's getting away with the genocide they did, unless there is a just God. And so you either join them, or you kill yourself, unless you know that God isn't letting anybody get away with anything. 
Sometimes we need to realize we, we, we probably have had it fairly okay. But there are people who have memories of atrocities. And without being able to join Asaph in saying, nobody who did this and still hates you when they die is going to get away with it. Where does their mind go? But then there's a better thing. We don't put our hope in justice. We put our hope in a God who is always going to be with us. God, you take care of them. I can't hand, I can hardly handle one bad situation, let alone all the evils in the world. I can't handle this. But I can handle being with you. Thank you. It is good to be near God. And guys, this is our medicine. This is our sanity. This is our hope. It is good to be near God. And then to tell others all about it. Band, why don't we come up? I'm going to pray. And let me just say this, saint. I've, I've spent some very painful soul searching in the, recently, realizing how many problems, quote unquote, I had in life were simply envy. Wishing that my life were different so that it could be easier. Anybody? That's envy. It's imagining that other people have it better and that God has wronged us by not giving us something we need. And the other side of acknowledging that there's this like life circumstance envy and repenting of it is so much more peace. Because God is what we need. So let's have a time of prayer. And if you need to confess something, freedom is waiting for you on the other end of this confession. Amen. So let's pray. Father, here we are before you. Thank you, God, for the story of Asaph and the pain he went through to bring us this scripture. And Father, where we've been bound in envy. Imagining that it would be so much better in another family or another body or another mind or with more money or with better health or a different country. God, would you forgive us this longing, this, this almost this accusation against you that you're, you're messing up our lives. And God, I pray instead you would give us the sanity of Asaph, this treasuring of the presence and covenant faithfulness of God. Lord, for all my friends who are either in the midst of this struggle or have moments of wondering whether it's worth it to follow you, God, I pray that you would take them by their right hand and lead them through the trials so that they too will say, and we could all say with faith, There's nothing on this earth I desire besides you. Which is our freedom and our hope in Jesus' name. Amen.